a seat. Hey, again, I just want to speak really highly for a slice of coastline uh, this evening at 6. Uh, a great chance to connect with other people. And also, uh, next week, really want to encourage you to join us with St. Andrews. Uh, Michael's going to be leading worship. Pastor Peter Dunn from St. Andrews will be doing the preaching. He is a guy that Garrick and I have developed a real friendship with. I really respect him. I think he's a gifted preacher a really good pastor, and I think it's going to be a really special morning. So that doesn't mean that you get a skip because we're doing joint together. In fact, I want to encourage you to come even more so because I think it's going to be uh, great. So we've been in the book of Acts for, uh, since the fall, uh, kind of making our way steadily through. We took a break at Christmas time, and right now we're kind of entering into a new kind of chapter, a new kind of season in the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 1, what I would describe kind of like the first big kind of bracket in the book of Acts, was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And how, when the Holy Spirit comes, uh, it empowers the disciples, it transforms the disciples, uh, and it really launches their ministry. And so you find these disciples who were uh, usually messing up in the gospel, suddenly transformed into bold ministers of the gospel, bold proclaimers of Christ. Uh, the second kind of era, the second kind of chapter we see in the book of Acts is as this church becomes a family, as they become united, as they become to generous with one another, and as they begin to humbly serve one another. And then we moved into how the gospel begins to kind of cross boundaries. As it begins to reach people who would have been uh, on the outskirts of the gospel, who would have been on the outside of Israel, and how the gospel begins to make connections with them. Tonight, we're going to enter into what's a three-week phase, what I'm calling like a, a little interlude of power. As the gospel is going to come against powers in the world, and we're going to see what is greater, the gospel of Jesus or the, go or the powers of the world. So tonight is the first kind of week in that. Tonight we're going to be looking at the way the gospel comes into contact with King Herod, who was the king and the ruling authority of his day. How does the gospel do when it comes against political power? Next week is the gospel against spiritual powers. We're going to look at Jesus versus the demonic world. And in three weeks, we're going to be taking a look at what is greater, the gospel or the illnesses that we experience in this world. So we're going to be taking a look at three things that affect us, things that seem like power in our life, and whether or not the gospel is greater. And I was thinking about a verse to kind of anchor this season in, and I kind of looked at Romans 1.16, where it says that the gospel, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. The gospel is power. It is not something we merely believe. It is not a good way to live. It is not simply the message of Jesus. It is actual power for our lives. I think that's an important message because I think you and I are naturally drawn to power. We want power in our lives. We spend a lot of our lives trying to gain power. We experience that in our work life that frequently we're looking for a promotion or for a chance to become a lead on a project or a chance to have influence or say in a certain room because we want to have power. We want to change the world. We want to improve the situations we're in. We are drawn towards influence and power in our work life. Uh, I think in my parenting life, I, I currently have teenagers who definitely want more power in their own lives. They want more agency to decide what they're going to do. And as parents, we're trying to gently give that out without watching them like fall flat on their face. 
Uh, the parenting metaphor that we always use was rock climbing. We want to see our kids rappel down the rock face, and we're handling the rope. We don't want to let go too fast and watch them splat, and we don't want to hold on so they just dangle and spin. So maybe that's in your parenting life. You're trying to figure out who gets the power now. How much power do my kids get, and how much do I need to hold on to? Or maybe that's just power as a, a persona that you want to put out there. You, you believe that weak people get trampled. And maybe you have been trampled in your life. Maybe you've been taken advantage of. Maybe somebody in power really hurts you. And maybe it was a parent, somebody who never should have used their power in this way, or a loved one. And they used it in a way that took away your power. And so you're committed that no one's ever going to take that power away from you again. You're never going to be vulnerable. You're never going to be weak in that same way. And so you're trying to be powerful so that you aren't run over or ignored. Uh, these are just really natural things, and I find those desires really alive in my own heart. And I have to battle them in my own life. And then I come across these passages where, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they're asking him, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Who's going to have the most power? And what he tells them is that it is the person who gets on their knees and, and washes the feet of others. They are the person who will be great in the kingdom that power is something that we can almost feel free to give away. That it's something we don't have to strive for or grab onto or need more of. That power can be something that we could actually hand over because we know that all power and all authority are truly Jesus's. And if authority and power is Jesus's, if he has it all, and if he sits at the right hand of the Father, then I don't need to have it because I'm comfortable that it rests in his hands. And so I think part of it is this lesson. I want more power and authority and agency in my life, and yet I can give it away. I don't have to have it because I know that Jesus does. Now, I think the message for today that we're going to be in, which is going to be out of Acts chapter 12, it is uh, triggering in some ways because it is the authority of the church, the power of the gospel, the rule and the reign of Jesus versus Herod who was the ruling political king of their day, the political power and the force uh, that kind of ruled and affected their daily life. And whenever we come across these passages today, they're landmines as I preach it, because if I'm going to talk about the gospel and political power, we are all uh, triggered by politics today. I'd say we are all bruised by politics today. And by preaching on it, chances are I'm going to pull a trigger I'm going to touch a bruise. And that's never anything you want to do in a sermon. You want to kind of pastor people. But today we're going to look at this thing that is by nature triggering. We are bruised. And so if I come near one of those things today, please know it's not my intention. I am the least political person that I know. Uh, I have no allegiance to either party. But I do think that we see the gospel coming into contact with politics more than ever. And so there's something the Bible has to say. And if we believe that all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, then this is a good passage for us today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12. Again, we're going to be taking this slowly. It's an incredibly long passage, and so I'm not going to read it all the way through. We'll take it in chunks, uh, but I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And while I pray, Brian, if we could bring the microphone down just a little bit. There's a little bit of a ring to it, and it's going to drive me bonkers as I go. So let me, let me pray. Lord, Lord, I think for so many of us, we're trying to escape <laughs> the, the news, the things of life. 
Lord, we're coming to church looking for energy and positivity, and Lord, we're looking for connection with you, and, and Lord, this topic kind of pulls us out of that space. And yet, Lord, we know that you are always with us. Lord, that there is uh, no place that we can't go with you if your spirit goes with us. And so, Lord, as we take a look at what the rule of Herod did to the church and how the church overcame that, God, we ask that you give us eyes to see our own context, our own idols, our own hopes, and our own fears with politics. And God, you'd help untangle some of those things. Um, Lord, you'd help us to release some of those things. And you'd detach us from um, just how deeply we might affiliate ourselves with either side. Lord, uh, I'm sure there's a million ways I could step on a landmine. Would you just kind of keep me in the center of the lane today, Lord? And um, I pray for grace for the congregation, for, for what needs to be preached. And Lord, pray, Lord, that you would be the one who challenges us today. Uh, you'd get in and do some work in our heart and life, because certainly if the conversation is going on, there's a way that we should be discipled and mentored and taught by you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread, and after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. If we do just a little bit of historical work, it'll give a little bit of color and shape to what's happening here in the passage. Now, in the first century, uh, the nation of Israel, it is occupied by the Roman Empire. They have conquered it. They moved in about the year 63 BC, uh, and with Pompey moved in and took it over. And so they are now occupying and ruling, and Israel is just one of many nations that Rome is occupying. Their empire goes as far as west as Spain, as far as north as England, as far as east as India, and as far south as Africa. Now, if you're going to rule that big of a land kind of mass, what you need to do is to find people to rule it for you who are going to be loyal to you and obey you, and then perhaps people will listen to them and they can kind of rule on your behalf. That is exactly what they do in Israel. They find a king who can be a puppet king for them, who will rule Israel, and if Israel does not fall in line, they will simply kill that king and replace him with somebody who is more compliant. And so the person that they choose for that is a man named Herod. Now, Herod has a very difficult job, and that is because Israel is deeply monotheistic, believing that there is just one God. Rome believes that they're, they're polytheistic. They believe that there's many gods, Zeus, Aphrodite, Ares, there's tons of gods. More than that, they believe that the Caesar is God on earth. So when they're going to occupy this nation that is monotheistic while they are believing in many gods, it's going to be a constant struggle. And what we find is that Israel is constantly having rebellions against Rome because Rome keeps, in a sense, tripping over themselves. They keep alienating the people of Israel in the ways that are deeply personal to them. So Herod's job is to make Rome happy and to keep Israel from rioting. There's a problem, though. Israel hates Herod almost as much as they hate the Romans. 
In a lot of ways, he probably couldn't have been a worst person to pick for this job. There's a few reasons for that. First of all, Herod is only half Jewish. He is also half Idumean, which means he's Jordanian. So he is only half Jewish, and for people where their culture and their racial identity was everything, that is one huge strike against them. Herod was also educated in Rome, and so he is more Roman than he is Jewish, and he also was put in charge of emphasizing the taxes and carrying out the taxes of Rome. And so for all of these reasons, the Jews absolutely hated him and saw him as a puppet and a traitor to them. Now, Herod knew this, and so what Herod tried to do was every chance that he could, he tried to appease the Jewish people to let them know, see, I am a good Jew, you can trust me, you don't have to hate me so much. And here we see in the very first part of, Romans, of Acts chapter 12, Herod trying to appease the Jewish people by persecuting the church. Now, this is interesting. There had been a season where the church had been beloved in Israel and had been treated with respect within Jerusalem. This is out of Acts 2, 44 to 47. This is speaking about the disciples. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and, and this is the most important part, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So in the early days of the church, they enjoyed the favor of all the people. All of Jerusalem liked these Christians. They saw their charity and their kindness. They saw that they cared for the poor and the sick. God seemed to be with them. But now, in Acts chapter 12, it's been about a decade. It has been 10 to 12 years. And now, the favor that the early church had has been lost. How did they lose it? What is, is it that the church did that caused the city of Jerusalem to turn on them and the Jewish leadership to begin to hate them? There's two theologians that I deeply respect, one named John Stott and another one named F.F. F. Bruce, and they both agree on what is likely the cause of it, and it's this, that the Jewish Christians had begun to reach out to Gentiles and to bring the gospel to them. We already saw this a couple weeks ago when Peter ate with Cornelius, this Gentile uh, Roman uh, centurion. And as a result of them reaching out and creating relationships across the boundary, that was so offensive and it was so threatening to the Jewish people that they challenged Peter on it and began to persecute the church. That makes so much sense to me as we look at what has happened so far and where it's going uh, in the weeks ahead. They had support. They had lost it, and now Herod is trying to find a way to keep the Jewish people happy. And if they hate the Christians, then Herod's going to persecute the Christians. And so he makes the, first, the second martyr, James, and now he's planning to do so with Peter also. Now this, this is a familiar story that has happened throughout the Bible as we've read it so far, that God's people have frequently come underneath the attacks and the persecution and the prosecution of ruling kings and governments. It's literally the story of the Jewish people throughout the entire Old Testament. When we look at the book of Exodus, we find the Jewish people who are slaves underneath Egypt, and they're treated ruthlessly. 
King David spends almost a, a huge stretch of his life fleeing from King Saul because Saul believes that David is God's chosen one and he believes that people like David better than him. So David, God's anointed, is spending his life running from Saul. In Babylon, we see Daniel thrown into a lion's den because he will not uh, worship the gods of Babylon. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a furnace because they too will not worship the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. We see John the Baptist beheaded by Herod. We see Jesus crucified by Rome and Israel. And by the time we end up ending this era of church ministry, we're going to find 11 of the 12 apostles will be martyred for their faith. And so you don't have to look far to find stories about God's people finding themselves underneath the attack of the ruling powers and authorities of that day. And it's something that continues to happen even right now. Today in China, there are 130 million Christians. It is the fastest growing uh, region in Christianity. And almost all of them are worshiping in underground illegal churches. In Kazakhstan, which Rolling Hills Covenant had a deep connection to, if you're a Christian, you need to register with the government to this day. And churches are constantly raided by the government. In India, there are 70 million Christians. But there's a movement within India right now to return it back to its Hindu roots. And so there's an effort to purify and purge, purge India from Christianity to, re- to return it back to its Hindu roots. Now, in America, we frequently talk about we are facing persecution. But if we look at what else is happening in the world, what's happening here simply doesn't measure up with what's happening out there. The things that we're experiencing here, however you might experience them, when we look at what's happening globally, people are losing their lives. And here, we are more likely facing trials and challenges than true persecution. Following Christ has always been dangerous. And in a sense, suffering for Christ is the inheritance of the church. It is something that has passed down to us, and it is something that we have received. Now, to suddenly find yourself, for these Christians, suffering at the hands of government is terrifying because the government actually has authority to truly harm you in ways that nobody else has. Uh, The government can legally imprison you, can legally kill you, can legally punish you, and the government can legally silence you. That is not something that any individual can do in and of themselves. In most states, citizens can't carry guns, but the police can. That is the power and authority that they have over you. Uh, The government, the police can arrest you. They can detain you. They can imprison you. But that is not something that I can do or you can do. If you and I tried to do those things, those would be crimes in and of themselves. The government can legally put you to death But that is something that I cannot do. That would be murder if I did. You see, when the government uses these powers, they're operating within their power. And that power is beyond something that you and I could ever touch or ever have. Now, when the governments are just, these powers order a society. They keep people safe. They help enact laws. And they help everybody exist within safety. But you don't have to go far to find stories of governments who use those powers to harm. And that is true both in our nation and in our history and happening around the world now. There's always a government who's using their powers to harm the people. And the people who are oppressed, they oftentimes suffer at the hands 
of the government. And so these disciples, they have fallen into the government's hands. Herod is using his power against them. There is nothing they can do to stop them. If Herod wants to silence, kill, murder, imprison them, he can, and there's not a thing that, you, that they can do. The disciples have fallen into their hands of the government, and they cannot get out. Now, Jesus had warned them that if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. The disciples always struggled to understand that. Jesus had told them that this would be the case, and yet we find them still asking Jesus, can one of us sit at your right and one at your left when you come into the kingdom? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Meaning, can you accept all the consequences of my ministry yourself? And they say, certainly we can. And he says, you know what? You will. You will. And Christians will drink the cup that Jesus has, and they will suffer. What's interesting, I think, though, is the command of Jesus is that the kingdom of God has a power in and of itself that is totally different than the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world has the power to silence, capture, imprison, and harm. That is what they have. But the power of the kingdom of God is the power to endure persecution, not to give it, but to endure persecution. And not to punish and silence your enemies, but instead to love them. That's the unique power of the kingdom of God. Herod and Rome have the ability to dominate your life. They could beat you. They could seize your property. They could force you to serve them. In fact, what these Christians were experiencing was something that was uh, on a scale of suffering that you and I just have not come into contact with yet. Jesus speaks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if somebody strikes you on your cheek, which was something that was happening every day with Roman centurions coming into contact with the, with the Jewish populace. If somebody strikes you on your cheek, he says, you're to turn the other cheek. That's the way you're to react to power. That's the way you're to engage with suffering. If somebody harms you, you turn the other cheek. A Roman centurion could take you and they could force you to carry their stuff for one mile. Imagine what a nuisance that would be. That if you're going about your life and your business and somebody could force you to carry their things for a mile, we would lose our minds. And Jesus says, when that happens, don't only go one mile, but go two. That is how you're to interact even with unjust authority. They estimate that the taxation rate in Israel at this time was about 80%. They had the ability to take everything from you. And he says that if somebody takes even your cloak, well then give them your tunic too. You see, Jesus says you're going to come into contact with unjust governments, with unjust authority, with people who are going to misuse their power, misuse their authority. And in those moments, God has given you a kingdom that you belong to, and that kingdom gives you the power to endure and to love even in the midst of it. Hate for hate and anger for anger is not the way of the kingdom of God. Love is. One of the church fathers, his name is Jerome, he wrote this in the year 347. He said, the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow, and martyrdoms have crowned it. I fear that Christians today, myself included, have forgotten this lesson. Oftentimes I fear that Christians are fighting the wrong way. So many Christians I know are deeply angry about everything. About masks, about pronouns, 
about politicians, that you are too woke or you're not woke enough. We're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And yet it seems that those sorts of fruits are withering on the vine of the church. And what is growing instead amongst Christians is the fruit of the flesh, which should be gossip and slander and rage and bitterness. There's more of that to harvest than we can handle or hold. Willie James Jennings is a theologian that Garrick and I have referred to repeatedly throughout the sermon series. He said this, speaking to Christians, certainly a sign of our human sinfulness is the perverse pleasure we take in the death of our enemies and the satisfaction we take in the silencing of our opponents. Let me try to put that into a a more, um, an easier way to understand it. There are politicians that if they died tonight, you would celebrate when you got home. There are, on both sides. That there is part of us which looks more like the world than looks like being a member of the kingdom of God. We are fighting for Christian values, but we are fighting in the same way that the world does. The power of the gospel is not to outshout the other side, but to outlove it. Let me say that again. The power of the gospel is not to outshout the other side, but to outlove it. There was a viral moment that happened this last week involving, of all people, Dua Lipa is Stephen Colbert. So Dua Lipa is a singer. She's English. She was like the biggest thing on earth last year. Won a billion Grammys, I think. She went on Stephen Colbert, and she kind of turned the tables on him, and she said, can I ask you a few questions? And she said, you're a comedian, and I know that you're a Christian. He's a Catholic. And she said, how do those two things coexist? And he gave this phenomenal answer. What he said is this, is that being a Christian means that you know that love and sacrifice are related. And as a result, since love and sacrifice are related, are related, that death isn't defeat for a Christian. And then he quoted Robert Hayden, who was a former poet laureate of the United States. He says this, we must not be frightened or controlled into assuming that evil can be our deliverance from evil. Evil cannot be our deliverance from evil. And what made it go so viral wasn't that Christians were reposting it, but that secular people were saying, this is the sort of Christianity that I'm interested in. One that does not return slap for slap or hate for hate, but lives with the kingdom of love overflowing from its heart. When we fight in that way, we are fighting for the wrong kingdom. We, I think, believe too easily, we, we believe that our problems are political ones and that the solution to what's currently troubling us can be solved through the next election. Look, politics by its nature creates opponents. That is how it survives, is how it thrives. It creates a sense of threat across the aisle about what might happen, and that those opponents have to be uh, defeated. Can I tell you, in my own life, what I see happening in the life of the church is that the more invested you are in the world of politics, the less invested you'll be in the kingdom of God. The more invested you are in politics, the less invested you'll be in the kingdom of God because you will tend to see the world as full of good and bad opponents and those who are on your side, people who are in your tribe and people who are threats. And if you think that way, then you're never going to truly ever be able to love your neighbor. 
It will always be a conditional loving of your neighbor. The kingdom of God says, uh, you are as much of a sinner as, as I am. And you are as, as loved by God as I am. And since I know what it's like to be a sinner, since I have received already the grace of God, I can give that to you. Now, Herod, he believes that the Christians are going to fight. I mean, he's seen so many revolts already. He believes that there's another revolt coming. And so look at verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And the sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. There's a sudden transition that happens here as suddenly Peter is woken up by what is happening here and the gospel is coming to relieve him and to get him out of the situation. Christ is saving him. You see, what Herod thinks is going to happen, he thinks that the Christians are going to come with swords to free Peter. But the Christians are going to fight, but they're going to fight in a totally different way, in a way that Herod cannot stop. The way the Christians are going to fight is through prayer. And prayer is this weapon that Herod has no ability to stop. There is no place where he can hide. He has four guards that can protect Peter from swords, but there's not enough guards that can ever protect them from prayer. And the church is earnestly praying for Peter. And the reason why they're praying for Peter isn't because they just believed that prayer was powerful. It's because they had seen that prayer was powerful. They had seen it with their own eyes that people had been healed and that demons had been cast out and that God had done the miraculous amongst them. They knew that prayer was powerful because they had seen that prayer was powerful. And so they prayed believing that God could do something on behalf of Peter. They knew that God could come and save him and could change his situation in this moment. So they prayed expectantly and they prayed big prayers. Every time I see somebody who's truly invested in politics— what I think to myself is there is somebody who probably doesn't believe enough in prayer. Because if we believe that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective, James 5, then what I'm going to think is every time I see a problem or every time I see a disagreement, I'm going to decide to pray about it and believing that there's more power in prayer than in my vote. Friends, there's more power in your prayers than in your vote. And these people pray, and as a result, they see God doing something. Uh, this is my honest moment. I tend to be a person who bends the rules. If you know me, you know that about me. Uh, when I told the story last week about sneaking down to a national park and running out and I do it again, that is who I truly am. I am a rule bender or breaker. Uh, and yet I have been uh, un, uh, against my nature uh, very compliant with most of the mass stuff that's gone on. Uh, in our county, in L.A. County. When other churches have been taking their masks off, we've been persistent and kind of per pushing through with that. But I hit a moment this last week where I just thought, I am so done. I am so done. I am so frustrated. Um, and it felt so burdensome to the church and where we're trying to go and, and what a hindrance they are. And they're becoming increasingly divisive. It was just a hard week for masks. And I went and met with Andrew Ferris, who is our, one of our family theologians. And I went, man, I am thinking a lot about Romans 13, which says submit yourself to every authority. And 1 Peter 2, which also preaches that we are to submit ourselves to the authorities that God has established. Because there's no authority established except by God. 
I said, is there any other way around this, Andrew? Like these passages, I can't violate these scriptures, but is there any other way? And he goes, I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe prayer? He goes, maybe, maybe we just need to really pray that God would change some of the mask mandate stuff regarding churches in the county. And I laughed because I thought, I'm literally writing the sermon right now on prayer. And my solution had been to muscle up. Let's just say we're done. We're not doing it any longer. And yet, to do so would have violated my conscience in ways that would have been a real challenge. But the answer, I think, again, is prayer. That prayer has this ability to truly change, to change the world. We overestimate the power of political resistance, and we under, underestimate prayerful persistence. I'm going to say that again. We overestimate the power of political resistance, and we underestimate prayerful persistence. That if you and I truly want to see a change in this world, it begins with prayer. And when God answers prayers, things change quickly. Acts 12, verse 6. The night when Herod was going to bring Herod to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. I covered that. Uh, I'm going to pick it up in 11. Uh, I'll pick it up in 10. You know, I'm going to pick it up in 8. We'll start there. <laughs> Doofus. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and angels. He's, he's, he's uh, awoken by this angel and he's taken out. And Peter did so, wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. I would like to tell you that this kind of big story, that it's like Ocean's Eleven, where there's this big heist that happens, but it's nothing like that. An angel comes and the chains fall off. An angel tells them to rise and they walk past sleeping guards. There's a, guard that, there's a gate that is barred and they touch it and it opens up. It is the easiest escape from prison ever. This isn't the Shawshank Redemption. It is nothing like this. This is a man walking out of prison simply because God wills so. And it's because the church is praying. You see, prayerful persistence is far more powerful than we think. And it helps us see, and this is an important thing, why is Luke telling this story? Why is this important in the entire narrative of the church? Is that Luke knows that from this moment on, as Christianity grows and as churches begin to expand, as the gospel spreads, he knows that the church is going to come into contact with other hostile governments, with other kings who are going to hate them, with other people who are going to persecute them. And when that moment happens, Luke wants Christians to know that God is sovereign over every sovereign. That he is greater than every king, that his kingdom is greater than every nation, that there's nobody who could stop him. There's something that I have skipped over in this story that I think is important to know, and it's that Herod is a very familiar name in the Bible. We see this throughout the gospel narratives. Herod, Herod is a constant character, but where we get it wrong is we think that it's one person. It is not. It is seven different people named Herod. It's an entire family. It seems that there's this power, there's person who has this powerful rule and reign that is simply overcoming every sort of power, and he's causing people to flee. It is seven different people. The first one is Herod the Great. 
Herod the Great is the one who the wise men meet, who tries to kill the Messiah and murders the children and causes Jesus' parents to flee into Egypt. After Herod the Great was Herod I. This is the Herod who kills John the Baptist and beheads him. After Herod I, there's Herod Antipas, who oversaw the trial of Jesus, and Jesus refuses to speak to him. After him is Herod Archelaus, who's mentioned in Matthew chapter 2, and Herod II, who's mentioned in Luke chapter 2. And then in our story, it's Howard, it's Howard, it's Herod the Tetrarch, who is in this story. You see, all of these people named Herod, they had this moment in power, and then they died. Every one of them was this momentary figure, a momentary threat, a momentary risk, and yet the power they had was simply for a moment, and it never was able to stick, and it won't stick for this Herod too. For the sake of time, I'm just going to go quickly. There's a story at the end of this book of Acts where Herod walks out into his court, and he is wearing a silver glittery robe, it says. Lots of sequins. And as they see him, the people say, surely this man is the voice of God. This is a Jewish ruler leading a monotheistic people. You can't do that. He receives the praise, and as a result, it says Yahweh strikes him dead on the spot. That's how the story ends. We have histories. Josephus writes all about this. His history of it's great. Like, Herod was dying. He looked up and saw an owl. He realized the owl was an omen from the gods. He gives a big speech on his deathbed and dies. Anyway, this is a common story. Why is this story again in the Bible? It's again to show you that any ruler or government or power that you fear or you believe is a risk is only going to be there for a moment. Chances are in the last 10 years there has been a president you loved and a president you hated. Guess what? They've all come and gone. And the person that you fear is going to have power for only for a moment. But the one who will rule and reign forever is Jesus Christ, still on his throne. Sovereign over sovereigns. And so it gives us the freedom to take a deep breath and to release the pressure and fear of this world. To release the anxiety about what might happen or could happen. It allows me to not need to grab for power or try to conspire for power, or to get worked up or angry, or to allow the fruits of the flesh to live in my life, but allows me to love and serve and witness without fear or risk, because ultimately, the kingdom that we are a part of is everlasting, and the king that we are following is all-powerful, and there is nothing at risk for those who live and follow Jesus, because even death, even death is not finality for us. And so friends, we are free to breathe. You are free to turn off the news. You are free to turn off your angst and your anxiety and fear. And you are, you are free to go and love people, both like you and not like you. Because we are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would draw us out of the malaise that seems to cover all of us coming out of COVID. God, we ask that you'd keep us free from political sideshows that try to keep us worried and anxious. God, we ask that you'd keep us away from spiritual apathy that would cool our heart and our love for you. God, we ask for a tenacious hunger and a thirst for you and for your word and for your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
You know, at Coastline, we have been doing communion a little bit differently. We, we follow a liturgical practice, which means that we do something formal of both call and response, where the pastor will read something and where you will say it back to us. And we believe that in the formality of this, it's instructing, it's teaching. We're kind of training ourselves uh, about what God has done. And so uh, it's a little bit higher church than you might be used to or familiar with, but we believe that there's something beautiful in it. Uh, we're trying to make it simpler for you to follow, and so we gave you a, a handout how, here. We want to encourage you to take this out. And this will kind of guide us through the beginning of the call and response. And so let me begin. Friends, this is the Lord's table. It is open to all who believe and have professed faith in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus himself who invites you to this meal. This is food for the journey to which Christ has called us. Let our lives be nourished by the Lord himself as we celebrate at this, together at this table. And people say, we come to this table not because we must, but because we may. We come not because we are strong, but because we are weak. We come because we have any claim on the grace of God, but because of our frailty and sin. We come and profess our constant need for God's mercy and help. We come seeking God's presence and praying for the Spirit. Let's stand together. 